episode is what uh this week we're you know celebrating the seattle release or the seattle run of satchajit ray's apu trilogy which is playing you know for an entire week at the uh uptown the sith cinema uptown um and that's great wonderful news you know um and so we're going to talk about the green ray from eric romer and x the man with x-ray eyes from uh, roger corman uh, but because of the stupid podcast, I can't go see, uh, the story of Apu and subsequently watch the rest of the trilogy because this comes first. Apparently. Well, it's your own fault for not going to see it at the film festival when it played. That, well, what I, wasn't I working that day? I think I had to work. I think I had to oh, support so, my, so, my wife and kids. So the first... Well, first comes the podcast, then work, then Satyajit Ray, is what you're saying? <laughs> well, yeah, I, th- I guess it is what I'm saying. And, you know, to be fair, on, on my part, you know, I'm still getting guff from Lindy uh, because of the chess players episode where I watched the chess players without her. And she she's really enjoyed the, the Ray stuff that she's seen. And she's like, how could you do that to me? And so <laughs> there, was, there was an inkling of me that going... You know, I could sneak out today for a, a matinee of uh, Story of Apu, but that... Uh, did did the disc that you watched the chess players on, was it like a one-play only? Did it self-destruct after you watch <laughs> it and, and she was not able to view it? I think it was more a matter of it needed to be returned, uh, you know, before she could get a chance to watch it. Oh, it was one of those three-hour rentals? Yes. <laughs> I see. Take it up with her, damn it. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so yeah, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, it's kind of a roundabout way, uh, but we're talking about movies with Ray in the title. Um, sure. In, in addition, yeah, why, of the, course. why the hell not? <laughs> you know? Uh, I hope, that, uh, by the way, I hope that uh, the trilogy is, is doing well enough over there. It might even get extended. You never know. They might run it for another week. But um, And word on the street is that's coming out, uh, Criterion's releasing that in November. Yeah, the, supposedly they're going to be released at the end of the year. But after like five years of waiting for a brighter summer day, I am not counting any Criterion releases until they are actually in stores. So, well, yeah, that's it's. I understand. Um, but hopefully, fingers crossed for me. Hopefully, I can get to to the three of those movies before the end of the year. Because you know, maybe there's like a rights problem with the soundtrack. Like Nora Jones is it doesn't want her father's music to be on Criterion discs, so she won't let them. She doesn't seem vindictive like that. Oh, she's Nora Jones is mean. <laughs> stuff? Are you are you alluding to stuff from the set of uh, My Blue Brain Nights that I'm not aware of? 
Well, I'll just let me just leave it at that. You okay? All right. Don't want I'll to do know. my I'll do my own hunting. She's a vicious, vicious woman. Really? Yeah. Well, good thing we're not playing her music today. Yeah. On the show. Um, that would have been so a good idea. Just, we we could have done that. We could have. We could have. But that would have pissed not. her off. Yeah. <laughs> that'll that'll show her. <laughs> I, did you ever hear that song? Was it her or was it? Alicia Keys that did the the uh, James Bond thing with Jack White. Do you remember that? Did you ever hear that? No, I have no idea. But Nora Jones does a a great uh, song about the letter Y with Elmo. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's what we, that's what you're working with right now. Yeah, it's it's don't know why why didn't come. Oh. She's all upset that the letter Y didn't show up. It's a bummer, dude. Yeah. Uh, well, Can we you know, listen the to something y. from the Green Ray, <laughs> please? <laughs> what? Can we listen to something from the Green Ray now, please? <laughs> well, that's what I'm trying to set up this stupid show. <laughs> Got off the rails, like. All right. Uh, I, yeah. I, war- I warned you before we started that I am not feeling right. I just got back from vacation. I'm feeling sick. I'm really tired. This will either be uh, worse or better than normal for me. So. <laughs> and I'm even Steven. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, we'll jump into that. Uh, let's hear a clip from uh, Eric Romer's The Green Ray. Ça doit poser des problèmes, non, quand tu quand je rentré chez des gens. Enfin, euh... Bah comme là, mais. Ouais. Non. Ouais, non, on comprend bien, on comprend bien. Non, 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 mais... On peut y acheter quelque chose de spécial, c'est pas grave. Non, non, mais je veux pas qu'on m'achète rien de spécial, hein. Tout va bien. Okay, so The Green Ray came out in 1986. It was part of Eric Romer's uh, second multi-film uh, series that he did in his career, the first being The, the Six Moral Tales, and the second uh, being throughout the 1980s. He did eight comedies and proverbs. Uh, it is about a woman played by Marie Riviere who uh, has her vacation plans disrupted at the last minute, and it throws her in, into kind of a tailspin. She doesn't know what to do. She tries several different vacations, and none of them really work out, and it leads her into an existential crisis where she cries a lot. And then she hears a story about Jules Verne, and she meets a guy who might be nice, and they watch the sunset. And it's one of my favorite movies. It is my favorite Eric Romer movie. 
Uh, you end of podcast. End of podcast. <laughs> you, you, Mike have have apparently seen an Eric Romer movie before. Have you seen? A I, last year I watched uh, because last year we were doing 1984 films. I watched yeah. Full Moon in Paris, uh, okay. another one of these comedies and proverbs. Yes, uh, I think the the one actually pr- just preceding this one. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, and so... I quite liked it, uh, despite my aversion for uh, you know French people dancing. Uh, it was. It's a good movie. The the '80s fashions in Full Moon in Paris are are not to be topped. Like I, I don't. <laughs> They're pretty amazing. Like uh, Wheels on Wheels on Meals comes close, but but that is that is an impressive wardrobe that that yeah. cast has. Yeah. Uh, so we've talked about a couple other uh, French New Wave directors on the shows before. We talked about uh, Jean Luc Godard and Alphaville. We talked about Francois Truffaut and Two English Girls. We talked about um, Alain René and Jacques Demy, who are not technically part of the new wave, but they're close enough. Uh, how do you think Eric Romer fits into that group? Did you? I assume you liked this film because how could you not? Uh, I did like this film. So, um, so what do you think? How, how do I slot them in? What I mean, in terms of what, like, do you, like, where would I rank them, or like, or the, like, aesthetically, what their style is and how they would fit on like a spectrum from like Godard's craziness to Truffaut's, maybe a little more. Do you do you see like a like commonalities between them? Like, like if you did not know anything about the French New Wave and you saw a Truffaut, Godard, Rene, Demi, and Romer film, would you connect them at all? They're all really different. I mean, you know, it's which is a good thing. You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. There's not really. I mean, there are elements uh, that they share, uh, but there's not like a house style or anything to these. You know, people. I mean, which is fantastic. You know, um, but you know, yeah, I can definitely. See, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily a new wave thing, but you know, there's um, here there, you know. Not it's not afraid to have the camera linger on just like a conversation, you know, lots of conversation, um, and um, these kinds of you know the the existential crisis that she gets to in here um, is definitely something that I could see being done in a in a slightly different manner by some of those directors, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely I, I see a through line to a degree. Um, but I think um, Eric Romer's stuff is more, I don't know if refined is the right word, but it's, it's a lot more willing to just kind of be, uh, you know, like, like a Godard movie is like, you know, it's like uh, bouncing off the walls with its energy. You know what I mean? It's uh, more, it's more insistent. Romer's more relaxed, more contemplative. Yeah. And then, and someone like uh, Truffaut, um, I can't see a Truffaut movie going quite this relaxed either. Like his movies are a little more flashy too in a different way um, and stuff. And then obviously Jacques Demy or somebody like that, you know, there's no song and dance number. Here. <laughs> um, but they do go. They, where do they, where does she go at one point here? She goes to Cherbourg. That's right. Um, <laughs> which is, is, is not as colorful as it is in Jacques Demy's film, but uh it does look like a nice place to visit. Yeah, it's mostly so, colored green. Yeah, there's a lot of green going on in this movie. And that's something that I really do like is there's like, I, I wouldn't call this subtle, but... Um, 
And it's not subtle because she has like a whole conversation about it. And no, 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 no. But what I like about it is what I'm going to say is there's a there's um, a moment where she's having that conversation where she says, I see all this stuff and it's green. Uh, but in the conversation that she's having that shot, there's like a two shot thing, but going between her and then the friend she's speaking to. And there's not any green in that. But then it cuts to the third woman whose name I can't remember, the one that she ends up actually going away with for a little bit. Right. And, and that shot is like all green. Like well, she, she's dressed all in green. She's wearing like well, green and headband. And, <laughs> and behind her, there's like all this ivy and stuff. And it's like crazy green. But it doesn't linger on it. It just like cuts to it for a second. And you're like, oh, that's cute. And well, it it's, a, it's a joke. Like I laughed out exactly. loud. Exactly. That's, that's what I did too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so he does stuff like that. Like it's not like he's completely passive. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound like that, but um, but it, there's an assuredness to his work. That he's 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 more sly, I think, than that's than kind of than in your face. Like he's 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 clever, but not kind of self consciously so. It, it's like he's 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 less to prove in a way. Yeah, yeah. He's not he's not trying to like Godard is very clever. Um, but he really wants you to recognize that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Also, but while well, he's also taking the piss out of that too at the same time. But um, so yeah, this is a very enjoy. Uh, yeah, I I quite like this, and um, it's a movie that you, my opinion of kind of changed as it went on because her character um, Delphine is very uh, she she's she's not always sympathetic. Like you kind of, yeah. as the movie, as the movie goes on, you kind of become more sympathetic to her, her plight and, and the, and the issues that she's going through. But early on, you're like, man, you're kind of a buzzkill lady, you know? <laughs> like she's... Yeah. Well, I think there's like a, there's like an arc to your relation to her. Like you, you start out wanting to sympathize with her. Like you feel bad for her. Like, Oh, her plans are disrupted. And then as you get to know her, you like around the halfway point, or like at the half hour part, you're like, this woman is really annoying. Right, <laughs> right. And, but, uh, that, but then, but then, but then she she grows on you, and be, you begin to understand her a little more, and you and you sympathize with her again. But it's like a, a deeper kind of sympathy than than you started out with. And I think that sympathy comes for me. It comes where so she has these kind of as the movie goes on. You know, she she's kind of deposited into different vacation spots um with kind of friends of friends for at first and she you know she has an awkward dinner conversation where she talks about being a vegetarian and i you know i've been there i thought you'd love that oh god i've sat through that conversation so many times in my life and i hope i never have to do it again but where you're explain trying to explain your dietary beliefs uh in front of a bunch of people Uh, that's funny because the conversation (laughs) that i have had is the one where she's with the the swedish woman and they're flirting with the guys well no and then she runs away crying i've i've been the one running away crying when those guys showed up i was like oh it's mike and sean (laughs) (laughs) um no that i I was leading to that scene because that is the scene where she's she's met this swedish woman who's also traveling alone and is her her literally her opposite she's blonde she's uh she's really outgoing she's willing to run around topless she's um you know she's interested in this kind of you know all these experiences she's getting and delphine is is much more reserved and 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 even though she talks about wanting to meet people she's very scared of that and that scene is pivotal to me that's where i kind of changed my tune 
um, in regards to her and, and started to see more of myself in, in her. And, and cause I'm the same way. I hate those social interactions and, um, and, and I would absolutely bolt, you know, yeah, I'm one of those people, whenever there's a social engagement that, you know, Lindy drags me to like literally last Christmas, there was a, there was a party that was thrown, uh, by some of the hipster librarians who I can't stand, but, um, but I, but there was a, a social obligation that we had to go. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I said, all right, I'm giving you 15 minutes. You know what I mean? And so we drive up. I go in. I find one person I know. I talk to her for like 10 minutes. And then I, I tap Lindy on the on the uh, shoulder and I say, I'm going to go to the car whenever you stay as long as you like. And then I just sat in the car for like 45 minutes because I was like, I can't handle this stuff. <laughs> it's no good. It's no good. <laughs> the... The interesting thing about that scene is is she's so verbal throughout the the entire film. Like the the camera is focused on her, and she gives like these long speeches where she's talking and talking and talking and talking and talking, and she doesn't ever shut up. But in that scene, she doesn't she doesn't say anything, and the camera doesn't even look at her. Like it focuses on on the Swedish woman, and you can just like feel uh, Delphine just kind of dying off screen and then when when Romer cuts to her she's like got her head in her hands and she's she's like on the verge of crying and and you know exactly what she's thinking without her having to say anything without even the camera having to be focused on her for the scene because you're so kind of locked into her view of the world that you understand how painful it is to watch these two these two people flirt yeah in this really kind of idiotic way very idiotic yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's masterful. It's a wonderful scene, and 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 um, all that stuff that comes before it, like you said, kind of uh, plays into that, and 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 makes it a richer experience. And yeah, and then from that point, yeah, absolutely, I um, I'm I'm totally in lock uh, with her as she as she goes for the rest of her journey. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a really great great performance from from Marie Riviere and and a lot of uh, her dialogue I think it was improvised in like working with with Romer she has a screenplay credit and there's like a special credit uh for her at the end of the film yeah so yeah, yeah she's, I think, she's I think, absolutely essential to this thing yeah. and I yeah I think uh, the the character is you know is clearly her creation and and uh, it you know it, it hin- the whole movie hinges on that uh, what what do you think about the the green ray itself, which is uh, this kind of meteorological phenomenon that is inspired by a novel uh, by Jules Verne that uh, that Delphine overhears some women discussing, and like a, a really kind of clever bit of of eavesdropping exposition. Uh, can you clarify the question? So what do you what, mean? What do you what do you, what do you, wife, yeah? What, what do you think? what do you think of the green ray? What do you think of how uh, how that kind of metaphor, the the event, fits in with the film. Well, it's the, you know it's the, the green ra- it's 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 uh, it's you know it's the pot at the end of the rainbow. It's you know it's 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 the you know she's the whole movie. She's trying to attain something that is kind of intangible and or at least fleeting. And obviously, that you know the green ray itself is that literalized or whatever. Um, and yeah, the idea is that if you see it, then you will you will understand what is uh, what your own thoughts are, and what everyone, what the people who are with you, what their thoughts are. So you'll actually right. it's, it's understand about what people a are thinking. And yeah, 
which is what she's presumably trying to do this whole movie, and even though she's sabotaging it at every turn because she just is awkward and can't stand, you know, other human beings for the most part. Um, well, I don't know that she can't stand them. I think I think she she honestly can't understand them. She just can't read them. Yeah, well, it's I think like there a, are moments a social anxiety disorder thing. Yeah, I think she. There are periods where she, some of the people are are intentionally insufferable, um, like you said. Um, but yeah, no. But 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 ultimately, yes, she does want to make a connection, and and uh, and I think that the the ray symbolizes that, and uh, and yeah, I really, I actually really like. I mean, spoilers, you know, or whatever. But um, it's it's such an obvious ending, but it's so perfect um, that I I it, I really liked it. <laughs> yeah, did did you? I I I love the ending. I, it's it's one of my favorite endings. Do you do you think it's a happy ending? Uh, I, or do you think it's more vague than that? I think it's ultimately a happy ending. Like, I mean, I don't I don't know if the happy like like the Green Ray, the happiness is not necessarily going to um, stick with you. You know what I mean? It's a it's a it's a moment of happiness at the end. I wouldn't necessarily call that a happy ending, but it's. Um, I, I got happy when I saw it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, my wife read it as, as more ambivalent. That sounds like your wife. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was no, like, I, you I know, they, they saw the green rays. She had like this connection with this guy. And finally, after this whole film, she's like, eh. Yeah, but you're, Which I, you yeah, know, Kim, Kim, I, I, I argue don't know. With Kim, Kim, Kim brings a lot of baggage <laughs> to French movies that, um, it's no, true. She did. She did like this much more than than Godard. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Um, no, but Delphine. Even I mean, it cuts like what I actually did like about it is that um, it doesn't just end with that green ray. It cuts back to her for like half a second, and she gasps in what I thought was pretty obvious pleasure at having seen that, yeah. and 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 having shared that experience with somebody. Yeah. So I, I think it's happy. I think so too. Okay, well, get your get your wife on the horn. Let's uh, <laughs> um, her opinion. I really I really like the uh, the exposition scene when when the the old ladies are talking about the novel. Yeah, and uh, just the way it's whole kind of it's set up geographically as like Delphine's just walking by and just happens to like overhear these people, and then she goes down a little ramp and like hides behind them as they're sitting on a ledge. To, to overhear what they're talking about. Uh, I think that, I thought that was pretty clever. And then uh, the the one old man with them uh, at rules. the end gets up and starts like mansplaining everything that they have just <laughs> talked about. <laughs> and I think but, that's just but hilarious. But the old man is that he, he's, you know, he's trying to, you know, pontificate and, you know, give them this, this scientific explanation, but he keeps pronouncing, he keeps giving the wrong words and stuff. Right. Cause he doesn't actually know what he's, he talking, know what about. he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> But they but totally. But being women that are you know infinitely wiser than you know the men, you know they mm-hmm. kind of just like you know go him on. They kind of you know like they they nod politely and and let him do his thing. <laughs> yeah, I I I yeah, I love that. I love uh, the way Romer suits his films because they are so kind of not ostentatious but every shot is like exactly right like the camera is always where it needs to be uh he will zoom sometimes like just a little bit but not so much that you notice it like a like a hong sang su like 
well, like shock zoom into a scene and you really notice it. Uh, Romer's movements are, are just really subtle. Uh, the scenes don't play on uh, too long. Like there's cutting. Uh, they're a little longer than normal, but like it's it's almost like a, like a Howard Hawks than it is uh, a more you know uh, than it is his his contemporaries who are all really kind of flashy and want you to know that there's somebody directing there. Right. I like the kind of the invisibility of Romer's style. Well, and here you know I mean it's shot on sixteen millimeter and it's it's it yeah it's it's consciously staying out of the way mm-hmm. um in in you know there's there's scenes like on the streets of paris and stuff where it's it's clear that you know they didn't have like a big you know crew or whatever like you know she, it's kind of like i can't remember the shot exactly but it's kind of a, a shot that's trying to follow her and it, it gets really shaky because clearly it's just like someone like literally running down the street with a camera following mm-hmm. her um so yeah it's great but everything is still so so carefully coordinated, like we mentioned, oh, the, sure. like the jokes about the the color green and the way that that everything is, it kind of pops up into it. And I just that's like, I think I think that's something that that people forget when they're trying to to shoot minimalistically is that they also stage minimalistically. And I don't think Romer does that. Like I think he stages very carefully and then shoots naturally. Right, and he and he builds in like you said with all the green and and you know the sign when they see the sign that says the green ray and stuff. like mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's not lazy. Like he's act, yeah. there's the, there's work involved in in making something that's this um, relaxed, know, relaxed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I I uh, have you seen all of the uh, comedies and proverbs? Uh, I went and I watched I watched the six moral tales first. And then I watched uh, the Chris Rock movie. One of no, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't actually seen that. I've been curious, but uh, one of the one or two of the films he did in the seventies before the comedies and proverbs. Then I watched all the comedies and proverbs, and I have I've seen like uh, his last movie, and uh, that came out like the year he died, right? Or, or... yeah, like a couple years before he died, or a year before he died, something like that. Uh, but I still have like the the series he did after the comedies and proverbs, the the four seasons movies, and then uh, a bunch of other kind of random movies that were interspersed throughout his career. And I've been holding off. I mean, I've been intentionally holding off on watching them because I like them so much. I don't want to to blow through them all. Right. I know. I I, I know somebody that does that with Steely Dan albums. Yeah. That's. <laughs> I, you are the first person to ever compare Eric Romer to Steve again. <laughs> uh, I, you know, you know, I love Jean-Luc Godard. I've talked about Jean-Luc Godard. Oh, here we go. Lots Bold and lots on, on the show. But I, I prefer Eric Romer to, uh, I, to any of those French directors that we talked about or any other French directors. The only one I, who might come close would be Jean Renoir, who I'm also kind of parceling out slowly over my lifetime. I think... I think part of that might be age. Like, I think, like, if I saw these when I was, you know, 19, 20, 21, I, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't connect to them as much as I would, like, something like Masculine Feminine or something like that. Um, but as you, as, as, I don't know if it's maturity or, or what, but uh, I, I, to- I can see that. It's um, maturity. It's maturity. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I love Godard, too. I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I, I definitely think that 
you know, there's there's always that talk of, um, you know, art or, or movies or what, or books or whatever that, you know, you might have to be a certain age to really appreciate. And I, and I feel like some of the stuff that he goes through, like, like Full Moon in Paris, for example, that's something that I, I don't think, you know, someone that's 17 is really going to get the, the dilemma going on in there necessarily. Yeah, I, I I can see that. I mean, he was he was significantly older than those other guys. I think it was like ten right. years older than than Godard and Truffaut. Right. So maybe he just has like a different kind of generational spirit. Right. I don't know, but I I love him. <laughs> yeah, it was great great pick. Uh, I'm glad I watched it, and I I do want to see. Um, you know, I haven't seen any of the Six Moral Tales, so that you know that's. Something that I've uh, been meaning to get to. I will say this as a whole: I prefer the comedies and proverbs to the moral tales, even though the moral tales are more famous. Yeah, well, I mean, if if they're if they're anywhere close to the the, the few that you know the ones I've seen of this, then uh, I'm sure I'll be just happy. Yes, just fine. <laughs> uh, all right, well, that's that's the Green Ray, and tying in with that, uh, how could we not on the Ray episode listen to the Velvet Underground? Uh, and here's all 17 minutes of Sister Ray. <laughs> <laughs> So that was not 17 minutes of Sister Ray. That was significantly less than I that. Hope, I hope somebody, at least one person, skipped ahead 17 <laughs> minutes and, and then missed like the entire middle portion of this show. I, I would <laughs> not blame them had they done that. You know what I'm going to do in, in 15 minutes? 
uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend like we just came back from from Sister A. You're not gonna do that. I, I you're might. To, you're totally gonna forget. To I'm, pro- I'm probably gonna forget, but yeah. but it'd be awesome if I don't forget. So here's to future me. Right. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So 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 much like Delphine, uh, I have been on vacation. Uh, unfortunately, because because this is America, I had three days of vacation, not two months. Uh, <laughs> but regardless, uh, that is why this episode is late in getting out, and it's also why. I have not been watching any movies at all, but Mike, you have. So, Mike, what's Mike watching? Uh, it's funny that you, your vacation is the opposite of mine because my vacation is when I'm like, oh, I've got five, six days off. I'm just going to watch like 12 movies. Uh, <laughs> but I don't have a family and I don't have, you know, right. obligations like that. So, right. uh, so, what have I been watching? You know, I watch, I, I haven't been watching too much. Well, I've been watching a lot. That's, that's a lie. But um, <laughs> two things I want to bring up that I've watched in the last couple of weeks um, a pair of films uh, from directors that I've, always really liked um but i've but i've only seen a handful of their films and then i see another one and i'm like why you know and it blows me away and i'm like why have i not watched everything of of this person um of this director or whatever and so the two films uh, that i saw in the last week or so um i finally got around to um after a, you know years um leo mccary's make way for tomorrow Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I've obviously Leo McCary to me, duck soup, uh, you know, he could have just made that and quit and, you know, would have been all time, one of the all time greats, obviously. Um, but earlier this year I saw Ruggles of Red Gap for, for the first time and, and that just blew me away. Um, I love that movie. It's so good. It's just amazing. Um, and make way for tomorrow. I is, is really close. It's up there. Uh, I wouldn't say it's as good as either Duck Soup. Uh, I mean, it's weird to compare Duck Soup to Make Way for Tomorrow, but um, or for Ruggles for Red Gap for that matter. But uh, but it's an amazing film. And if if people don't know uh, the story of the film, it's um, uh, an older couple. Um, you know, this is during the Depression. They lose their house and they get split up amongst their kids. Um, and they have to, you know, all they want to do is be together, but you know, they live 300 miles apart now after, you know, 50 years of marriage. Um, and they're kind of shoveled around from their kids, um, who basically don't want anything to do with them. They're just a burden or whatever. And, um, it's, it's the movie that, you know, people talk about a lot because it's apparently an inspiration for Tokyo story, um, uh, that that is under dispute. It's apocryphal, yeah, sure. Uh, but it's yeah. been o- Ozu was a McCary fan, but he may or may not have seen Make Way for Tomorrow before he made Tokyo well, Story. See, and that's the funny thing about it is that you know, I was reading up about Make Way for Tomorrow after. Oh, I think it's in the Criterion booklet or something, and they were talking about yeah how a print of that at least didn't get to Europe until like the 60s like it was pretty late in the game i think right uh, for making its way over there but anyway but it's possible that like ozu or or his screenwriter had like read about it or or something like that right and it's not you know it's got the basic germ of the same idea but they're 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 very different movies regardless you know but sure um but what i like reflecting the different sensibilities of the great directors who made them right but what i like about both of them is you know you don't get a lot of movies that are compassionate about old people (laughs) um at least not ones that aren't really really boring yeah seriously um 
but this movie's just it's it's just really it's a tearjerker you know uh orson welles said uh what was his line about this movie um it could make a rock cry and so you know it's it's but it's never but it never it never tips over into maudlin sentimentality like that's what's so great about it is that it builds to this crescendo and then the final third of this movie is actually really joyous um in its way um and is just really a fantastic piece of filmmaking and i i I just absolutely love it and you know there are a lot of other mccary films that i haven't seen and well that's i was gonna ask you have you seen the awful truth because that that is the other film he made in 1937 and it is it is just as good. I know. I haven't seen it. And I love Cary Grant. So, you know, it needs to happen. Yeah. Leo, Leo, happen. Leo McCary in 1937 made arguably the two best films of that year. Yeah. Which is uh, unprecedented. It's absolutely, it's, it's, it's bananas. And did, did he win for The Awful Truth? Uh, yeah, he won Best Director for that, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Yes. So he won director for Awful Truth, and uh, then later for Going My Way, which is better than its reputation. Yeah. Well, I just you know, whenever I watch a movie like that, I'm just like, I just need to binge watch because you know there are those directors that you 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 get into their stuff and you just binge watch them, and and uh, McCary and then Nicholas Ray, who I'm about to talk about, uh, for some reason every time I see their movies, I'm like, I need to binge watch every Nicholas Ray movie. Um, and then I don't, and I wait like six months and I see another one. I'm like, I need to binge watch Nicholas Ray movies. Yeah. Uh, and today, uh, this morning I, I watched the lusty men, which I've actually, um, checked out from the library a couple of times and I just, it sits there and I'm like, I really want to watch this. And then something gets in the way and I have to return it. Anyway, long story short, I watched the lusty men. Uh, it's a Nicholas Ray movie. It's totally awesome. Um, and it's one that doesn't get bandied about as much as, you know, obviously Rebel Without a Cause um, or so, or even something like uh, In a Lonely Place or Johnny Guitar or something like that. Um, and I and once again, I wouldn't say Lusty Men is as good as, uh, it's definitely not as good as In a Lonely Place, um, but it's really, 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 really good. <laughs> um Robert Mitchum is a, you know, he, he's been a rodeo champion for like 20 years and uh, he's kind of, he's all beaten and broken and he decides to leave that world. But, you know, it pulls him back in as he joins uh, Arthur Kennedy, uh, who's like a cow, a ranch hand that wants to uh, break into that scene. And then Susan Hayward plays the wife of Arthur Kennedy, who um, just wants to settle down and have a stable life. And she's terrified of her husband getting killed uh riding a bucking bronco. And anyway, uh, what I wrote about it on Letterboxd that I'll kind of regurgitate here is uh, it really reminded me actually of Howard Hawks um, in its in certain superficial ways. Like it's set in a world of, you know, dangerous men, you know, doing these kind of action-packed things. Um, it reminded me of The Crowd Roars, which is, you know, uh, Jimmy Cagney, um, who is a race car driver and whose brother wants to become one. Um, but, you know... He's like, oh, no, it's too dangerous for you kind of thing. And that's kind of the, the you know, the main thread of this story. Um, but then at the same time, this is, like, so anti-Hoxian because it actually sympathizes with, like, the Susan Hayward's, like, actually, you guys are really kind of dumb and, like, let's settle down and, you know, lead a quiet life and stuff. And it's great. 
Yeah, I, I really like that one too. I, I really like Nicholas Ray. Have, we've never done Nicholas Ray. We should do Nicholas Ray. I think I think we've talked about it before, but well, uh, we probably talked about it for this freaking show. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that was the problem is that uh, I've I've seen all of them. That's what it was. Yeah, is I suggested something like a later thing, and uh, yeah, but yeah. no, we should do a Ray sometime definitely because yeah. yeah. that dude is on another level. He had he had like a this like 10 year period where where everything he made was was really great oh, just incredible stuff yeah. um so yeah so both of those movies totally awesome and check them out if you can um warner archive put out the lusty men uh like a year ago or so or, or sometime so it's on dvd it's available uh same with make way for tomorrow so yeah i think i think at this point most of his uh major films as a director are out like for a long time they weren't like you couldn't get Johnny Guitar right, it was, or something like that. Yeah, it was tricky, yeah. But but they're out there in in various editions, so Yeah. Go uh, go go watch Yeah, them. I think Olive put out Johnny Guitar and yeah, so yeah, they're Yeah, and Savage Innocence, I think Masters of Cinema put out in the UK. I think Run for Cover is out now by like like Warner Archive or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, they're they're there. They're available. Usually bare bones discs, but you know yeah. who cares? The movie's the point, and and it's they're all good. Yeah. <laughs> they're all good. So that's what I've been watching. Yeah. Uh, and you know, in the last year or so, thanks to Letterboxd, I've been watching a lot more. I've kind of been branching out and watching a lot more like exploitation movies and and kind of movies that weren't necessarily on my radar before. Um, and that brings us to what our essential is this week. Uh, we're going to pick, uh, tying in with X, the man with the X-ray eyes, which we'll be discussing a little later, uh, and Roger Corman. Uh, we're going to pick our essential B-movie this week. And um, with a slight uh, caveat, it's we can't pick a noir. That, that was a, the rule you imposed, Sean, which I think was right. a smart, smart decision. Um, so B-movie, you know, could, could be a lot of things, but ba the basic elements are, you know, very low budget, um, usually not big name stars in it, um, you know, those kinds of things. So do you have an essential B-movie for me, Sean? Uh, yeah, I'm going to actually pick uh, a Roger Corman film, uh, Mask of the Red Death which is a Poe adaptation starring uh, Vincent Price, as most of or all of Corman's Poe adaptations were. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's set in like a, a medieval castle during the plague. And this guy who's a, who the count or who, whatever he is, uh, is like a Satanist and he has like this big party and everybody dies. And it's really colorful and really awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about Corman in a minute because he's yeah. our person uh, of the week. But yeah, I'd like to talk more about his stuff. I mean, I haven't seen too many, but uh, uh, those Poe adaptations are, are definitely um, things that have stuck with me decades after I saw them. So yeah, the 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 Mask of the Red Death is 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 my favorite of those. It's just the, everything about it is just really creepy and and really haunting on such a low low budget yeah and, and that's what's great that that it's that kind of uh ethereality that you get with the the 
the the Corman film or just a really good B movie director who can who can give a sense of of the creepy and the the mysterious on on such a low budget. Yeah. It makes yeah. you it makes you think that that all movies are overpriced. Absolutely. That when you when you see a good B movie, that's exactly what I think where I'm just like because all of the stuff like you know, oh, they, they're, they're reusing the same set and all that stuff. It doesn't fucking matter if, you know, if, if you know, what's behind the camera and, and, and the actors playing it are uh, committed to it. Like, it, oftentimes it works. I mean, sometimes there are a lot of bad B-movies out there, but there are also a lot of bad, you know, $100 million studio movies too, so. Right, well, it's also like kind of a, an accident of, of timing with, with Corman Studio and American International Pictures and kind of the B-movies in the, the late 50s and 60s where they, there's all these like really talented people that were for whatever reason locked out of the studio system or just couldn't get enough work in, in Hollywood. It's like the cinematographer on Mask of the Red Death is Nicholas Regg. Right. So, I mean, talk about being overqualified yeah. for <laughs> for a B movie horror film, like, right. and that's the kind of talent you'll you'll find in in those films. You get like New Francis Coppola or or Jack Nicholson and people like that, right? Or, or regulars in in these films at the time. Yes. And I don't know if the same system is necessarily in place now. Yeah. Well, you see now, and I'm not well versed in current stuff so I'm, I'm i'm really talking from a place of ignorance here uh, as usual but um you know the only and i'm not i'm not putting him in the same category as coppola or scorsese or anything but uh what's his face um uh i just totally blanked on james gunn you know mm -hmm. the guy that did guardians of the galaxy you know he did right. he did a bunch of trauma stuff for uh you know a couple years and stuff and he kind of jumped out of that and and did that so um well it's just it's a different model in 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 place where where every movie is financed independently as opposed to being part right. of a studio like it's 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 easier if you're if you're really good and and really talented and and are adept at finding and making films that people want to see, then it's much more likely that you're going to be able to have the chance to make movies than in the, the studio era where like, right. the, it was really hard to mount a, a successful independent production in the 1930s in mm -hmm. Hollywood mm -hmm. just because of the nature of the system. But that, that is less so the case now. I mean, it's always hard to get you know the multi-million dollar blockbuster budgets, but... No, it's it's easier now than it was then. Yeah. So what what is what is your pick for for B? My pick is uh, this actually kind of ties in a little bit more with uh, what I was saying about um, directors like Nicholas Ray and Leo McCary. An another director who I've really uh, gotten into this year in particular. I mean, we talked about him last year, but um, Jack Hill, uh, who we talked mm -hmm. about as director of Coffee. Right. Um, he, I just recently watched, uh, spider baby or the maddest story ever told, which, uh, he made in like 14 days or something in 1967. Um, and it's amazing. I mean, amazing. It's, 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 uh, it's about a, a family, an inbred family that lives out in, in this kind of, uh, estate uh, that's that's kind of taken care of by Lon Chaney Jr., um, who has looked after the these stunted, uh, you know, 
kids. They're not kids. They're you know in their in their twenties or whatever. But um, and some uh, you know a gold digging relative decides to come in and, and take over the household, and they want to you know they want the estate or whatever, and basically they uncover this uh this family of just misfits and uh creepy evil people and it's like so much fun and Lon Chaney what's great about it is it's it's so so cheap um but once again the commitment of the of the people making it is what transcends everything and makes it so good Lon Chaney Jr. gives this like academy award not, I mean, he should have been nominated for an Academy Award for this thing because he brings this gravitas to this movie called Spider Baby, and and he's got this world weariness to him, and I mean, it's it's astounding. Like, it's he really does a wonderful job, and uh, the movie's just a blast. You've got uh, Sid Haig in one of his earlier roles, earliest roles, um, who we've seen in a bunch of of movies um, of this ilk. Uh, he comes in a little Lord. Fauntleroy outfit and he's like this like demented like speechless backwoods cretin and it's like it, oh it's great I love it spider baby it, it's so much fun is there an actual spider and or baby in the film because both of those things terrify me there is uh there are actual spiders there's a couple of tarantulas and then mm-hmm. Carol Omar who is also amazing. She, uh, she plays the spider baby where she's, she, it's one of her games that she likes to capture men in a net. And then with a couple butcher knives used as pinchers, she likes to, uh, be spider baby and, uh, kill them. And it's great. Yeah. I won't be watching that. It's so good. I love it. I love it. And I, and I think it just came out. I saw it on the, um, shelf at Scarecrow. I think arrow or one of those, uh, one of those companies just put out like a deluxe Blu-ray of it, but it's on YouTube. Like I think it's, pu- it's a public domain, I think, but, um, yeah, most, yeah. most of these are. So. Yeah. Uh, but spider baby or the maddest story ever told is phenomenal. And Jack Hill, like, so I've seen, uh, four Jack Hill films now and they're all great. Like coffee's great. Foxy Brown is like a weaker version of coffee, but it's still good. Uh, spider baby's fantastic. And then I recently watched, uh, the big Dollhouse, which is, uh, kind of a seminal women in prison movie, mm-hmm. uh, with Pam Greer, um, Sid Higgs in that one too. Um, and it's awesome. It's like so good. But anyway, have you seen, uh, have you seen caged heat? No, I want, uh, I think that was the first women in prison movie I've actually seen, but the Matt Lynch is, uh, an expert <laughs> oh, I bet he is. on the women in prison films. Uh, so I've kind of been lurking on Letterboxd and seeing which ones he suggests. Um, and I think that was one of them. Um, Caged Heat is, is great. It, I think it's the only women in prison film I've seen, but it might be the best Jonathan Demi film. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> You and I were talking about Ricky and the Flash during yeah. the break, which is his newest film, which uh, it just looks... It, I mean, you know, you shouldn't judge by a poster, but I'm judging by a poster. It looks really scary, scary bad. Well, you know who produced Cage Heat? Roger Corman. Roger Corman. That's right. Good setup. Good good way to turn it around there, Sean. All right. That was the Velvet Underground uh, with Sister Ray. Uh, I, I'm glad we got to play all 17 minutes of that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that was 17 minutes. Was it longer than that? Yeah. Damn it. 
Uh, so Roger Corman's the, our person of the week. Uh, obviously director of X, the man with the X-ray eyes, which we'll be talking about in just a minute here. Uh, Roger Corman is, I think it's safe to say, and I, I'm not super familiar with his stuff. I've seen the Poe stuff and this, um, and then obviously a number of things he's produced. But uh, I would say Roger Corman is one of the most influential people in cinema history. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt of that. Yeah. So as a producer. Yeah. I mean, like you said, like you were saying um, a few minutes ago, you know, just on the strength of the people whose career he he got off the ground or or was was willing to give a first shot to is uh, staggering. Yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, And I think, you know, he'll he'll be remembered more. He's still alive. I mean, the guy's almost uh, 90. Yeah, he's still producing uh, Sharktopus films. Yeah, he's 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 doing his thing, you know. Um, <laughs> he, he currently uh, dance with a vampire is his four hundred and ninth uh, producing credit, and that that was just announced. He's going to yeah. be producing dance with a vampire. Yeah, he um, he just turned eighty nine. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, he's going to be known more as a producer, uh, I think. Um, than than a director, even though he did movies like those Poe ones that um, I haven't seen since I was in middle school. You know, I saw The Raven and Pit and the Pendulum, and I think I talked about this on the show before, but um, those movies I loved back then, and they really stuck with me. Like, I remember moments of Pit and the Pendulum uh, much better than stuff I watched, like, last week, you know? Yeah, he, he was a very good director. Uh, yes. he's working in, in exploitation material almost exclusively, which makes it, makes it harder to judge him because a lot of the stuff he's working with is just not good, but he does it really well. He does do what, well, yeah, exactly. But he, he's not, he's not one, you know, one of his, one of his strengths and it also kind of limits him as a director is he doesn't direct above the material. Like he's not trying to subvert the genre or he's not making you know some commentary about you know judging people who watch horror movies or anything like that he right. he plays it straight and it it makes the films really effective and it makes them scary but it you know it, it it's not as as hip as directors who do horror today right who do it kind of tongue-in-cheek or with a, a winky attitude right or or try and cram in references to you know, a, a billion different things or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Roger Corman will produce a movie called Sharktopus, not because he wants to make fun of people who watch movies called Sharktopus, but because he really believes in Sharktopus. <laughs> because yeah. that, because that shit is fun. Yeah. And God bless him. You know, yeah. I mean, that's great. Um, that's great that he's doing it. I mean, you know, I have not seen, uh, one percent of his output but it's good to you know just going through his filmography or you know just even producing stuff and and seeing stuff like private duty nurses and you know oh he oh he uh i'm looking right now the big dollhouse the jack hill film he produced that uh, you know uncredited so um i mean yeah absolutely this guy has his finger um you know in a lot of pots and 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 thank goodness for it. Um, well, he also, and you know, he also in in producing, also produced some of the best exploitation films, like have, that have really 
lasted, like like Cage Heat, like, uh, right. like uh, Monty Hellman's Cockfighter, or uh, Death Race 2000, right. uh, or Battle Beyond the Stars, <laughs> or Rock and Roll High School, which we talked or about. Or Rock and Roll High yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to get to that. Um, uh, yeah, totally. Um, and he directed stuff, you know, um, I don't think I've seen all of the Little Shop of Horrors. Um, I haven't seen it, yeah. Yeah, I... I I, I remember little home. bits of it. I, I do want to see that uh, in in its entirety, but um, yeah, most most of what I've seen is is the post stuff. Um, also, like the terror and tales of terror mm-hmm. and Tower of London, which is a really interesting kind of uh, take on on the Richard the Third story as like a horror movie. Um, that sounds good. Yeah, but the the post stuff is really what he's most known for as a director. As this, a director, yeah. The series of films with with Vincent Price adapted from from Edgar Allan Poe's stuff, and they are all really good. I don't think I've seen The Raven, but I think I've seen all of the other ones, and uh, they are they are they are movies that that you need to see. Right. I think I think I think everyone should see them. They're essential. Yes, <laughs> they are uh, essential movies, and and you know not just Mask of the Red Death, but but the Tomb of the Gaia, and the Pit and the Pendulum, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I hope I hope uh, Roger Corman's around for you know a, a long time yet, and and gets to you know keep on churning out uh, interesting ti- you know movies with interesting titles that I may or may not watch, but. Uh, it's good to know that they're out there. Well, fight I just, the good fight. Yeah, it's 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 just it's nice to know that there's a person out there who will just make a movie based on the title. Right. Exactly. And it's way more fun than something like, you know, and this is me being biased. I haven't seen it, but you know, like Ant-Man or something like that, you know. I yeah. I I'd rather, you know, th- there's the uh the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie that he did that um never got released. I think it's on YouTube, but um you know, it's like super low budget, and it was made in like the '90s or whatever. Right. Um, and and arguably, it was just to keep the copyright, you know, uh, intact or whatever. But um, I've heard from certain people that, despite the fact that it's a terrible movie, it's better than any big studio Fantastic Four movie that's come down the pipeline. And and I'm willing that's to not believe really, that. That's not really saying much. I know, but I'm just saying. I'd rather, you know, that's what I'm saying. I I'd like to see his version of Ant Man. Yeah, uh, it, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page here, and, and under his unmade films, it says there is an adaptation he did in the mid-60s of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, <laughs> the James Joyce novel, and, and that is the movie I want to see. <laughs> That's your white whale. Yeah. Roger Corman's, <laughs> Roger Corman's yeah. James Joyce. Yeah. There, there is an alternate reality where, where Corman just made a series of James Joyce films <laughs> instead of Edgar Allan Poe. Right. With with Vincent Price as Stephen Dedalus. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I, I, want, I want to visit that universe. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. All Roger right. Foreman's Ulysses. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear a clip from uh, one of the... Uh, what are, I'd say more famous Roger Corman uh, titles. Uh, here's a clip from X, the man with the X-ray eyes. August 14th. Notes on experiment, designated X. Experimental subject, myself, James Xavier. X, the most fantastic experiment you have ever taken part in, presents Raymond 
in his most challenging role since his Academy Award-winning Lost Weekend. X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Are you all right? It's like a splitting of the world. More light than I've ever seen. Filled with light. X, the man with the X-ray eyes tries to help the most desperate in our society and enjoys all the delights of secretly studying sexology. Headache? No, it's just my eyes. A doctor with the power to see what others cannot believe. He can overcome the unknown save lives and invade the glamour gambling casinos of las vegas and defy the goddess of chance don't draw don't draw next card's a face card and harry you better go for the sheriff right now was a clip from X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Uh, Roger Corman directed that in 1963, starring Ray Milland as a, a um, scientist doctor who comes up with this eye drop that allows him to see a larger spectrum of, you know, light waves. Um, and basically, he gets drunk with the power of that uh, against pretty much every sign. Uh, to the contrary, saying that this is probably a bad decision because it's ruining every facet of your life. You've lost your job, you're on the run, you're being exploited. Uh, and, uh, you know, li life is pretty horrible, but he's addicted to, to what, he's, what he can see, uh, and it leads him down a dark and scary path. And uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting movie. It starts out shockingly so. Uh, and I love I love the beginning of this movie, Sean. Just with uh, the just the eyeball. Just an eyeball, like, and I actually hate. I I should preface this by saying I one of my you you were talking about your tolerance for spiders and mm -hmm. babies, uh, and I I I have very low tolerance for eyeball imagery. I've never liked eyeball imagery, but. Okay. This movie is intentionally supposed to be unsettling, and so it's very effective. In the beginning, we see this eyeball uh, for like a, a minute; like it holds it on this eyeball, and then it then it then we see an eyeball like with its optic nerve just sitting in this jar of you know liquid. It's really a creepy beginning um, to this film, and it may have just been them trying to pad the running time because this thing is super short. <laughs> 79 minutes long uh but 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 that's fine yeah uh, the, the opening and the closing are unusually long for a for a b-movie right they're just holding that but um 
So anyway, uh, you, we were just talking about all of the uh, the hallmarks of a Roger Corman film. This is clearly in his wheelhouse. What did you think of X, the man with the X-ray eyes? I take it you don't think it is up there with the Poe adaptations. Uh, no. And is it, can you can you tell me why? Is it because uh, it's not based on maybe one of the greatest writers, American writers of all time? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's fine. It's uh, it never really kind of goes as far with the weirdness as I hoped it would. Like there there are hints of like some really kind of twisted uh, 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 subtext that that the the film can explore especially especially with uh, the kind of religious allegory with uh with Raymond but it never really gets realized as much as as I think it should and and as uh as Corman does in in some of his other films or or even a movie like uh I was uh I I was thinking about this a lot in comparison to two two previous uh kind of uh sci-fi films uh the incredible shrinking man and uh and the invisible man mm -hmm. uh the invisible man the the claude rains one is is also about a mad scientist who invents a, a formula that he uses on himself and uh but it kind of brings out his his latent uh latent uh craziness just like it does with with Milland here but in the invisible man he's like actually psychotic and like goes and does horrible things uh Ray Milland never really kind of goes all the way with the crazy, with like the drunk on power kind of uh, of thing that he has. Uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man uh, has. Uh, have you seen that? It's. Uh, I've not. I've, I've seen the Invisible Man. I've not seen yeah. the Incredible Shrinking Man. Uh, Jack Arnold, uh, nineteen fifty-seven. Uh, it's it's mostly about a guy who like uh, accidentally starts shrinking. Like as a result of a, a scientific experiment gone wrong, if I remember right. But as, as he gets he gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and and ultimately he gets he gets so small that he kind of diffuses out into the universe, and he, like he becomes like like a molecule in an atom, and it, it's this weird kind of transcendence where it's it's kind of inverted the the shrinkingness to where he's expanded, and uh, it's really really cool. How that happens at the end of this movie? That's mostly about a, like a guy fighting like a giant spider with a needle, because you know it's a special effects movie. And sure. and I think I think this movie kind of nods in that direction, uh, especially especially at the end uh, where uh, Milan starts talking about uh, this eye that he sees at the center of the universe. Uh, that's like the very climax of the film, but there's just not enough of that there to be really satisfying to me i can see i can see that i love the ending of this movie i yeah. think that i think i think it really um it pays off and i, I can i can see your argument i can see that uh there's not enough preceding that um but that whole scene where I, the, the movie that this reminded me of and i mentioned it on letterboxd um a lot of is uh lucy luke Besson's film from last year um where uh 
especially in near that ending where he's kind of reaching this transcendence where he's he's trying to explain everything that he can see he can see everything and and he's sitting in the passenger seat of a car or whatever and he's just talking about that and it really reminded me of Scarlett Johansson's kind of just like when she's come to this benevolent acceptance of the universe in terms of Lucy um and obviously Lucy's a movie that go I think I Lucy I like more uh, because it's yeah, it's, I think it, I think Lucy works much much better than that. I, I agree. I, uh, I I think Lucy commits to it earlier and 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 does more with it. Yeah. Um, but the ending of this movie is pretty fantastic. But yeah, I agree. I, I think some of the side stories or the kind of the avenues that he goes on before that point um, are definitely a little lackluster, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, and there's, there's a lot of like B movie stuff. Like the thing that sets him on the run is like he, he uh, accidentally kills his friend by throwing him through a wall. <laughs> <laughs> just like, you know, the friend is like lunging at him and he just kind of steps out of the way and shoves him. And the guy goes flying through a wall and down like eight stories. And I'm like, did the eye drops give him super strength or, you know, are just the walls made out of cardboard? The walls made out of cardboard. Um, <laughs> Which is, is kind of silly. And there's like the, this whole subplot with, with uh, the Don, Don Rickles, Rickles character, <laughs> which, which I thought was building like this really kind of clever religious allegory where, where like Xavier's ability to see everything as he's, is, uh, um, as like a like a, a Jesus thing, he can like see inside people. He can see their souls, and so he's a, he's a healer, yeah. right? But but then it it doesn't it doesn't build from that. It just turns back into like the man on the run subplot, which doesn't yeah, yeah. which doesn't fit in the the Jesus allegory. Yeah, uh, I agree. I, it could have it could have followed that tack all the way to the end if it wanted right. to. And it, and it kind of it kind of zigged um, in a different direction. And um, I, although I do really like Don Rickles, um, <laughs> oh yeah, just, he's 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 terrific. He's great. I love the shot of Don Rickles when because when he first meets up with him, they they meet uh, in the carnival, mm-hmm. um, and Ray Milland is playing. A, you know, he's he's using his power to be like pretending to be clairvoyant or whatever. Yeah, just um, basically just to screw with Dick Miller. Yeah, basically. <laughs> By the way, Dick Miller. I want to talk about Dick Miller in a second too. Uh, I'm glad you brought him up. But uh, but there's a, there's a stretch of about ten minutes where Don Rickles is trying to figure out how Ray Milland is doing this. He thinks it's a trick, and then or whatever. But there's a shot, which might be the creepiest shot in the movie, except for near the end, where Don Rickles says I'm leaving and he goes out of the room and then he walks around to the side of the room and he's standing at a window like outside like looking in on Ray Milland and that is some creepy pervy stuff especially because it's John Rickles. Right and that and that's like the kind of thing that that should be in this movie more just kind of like right. playful uh things with like people watching things people seeing things that they shouldn't be seeing and right. that that is like an instance of of like uh, Corman's like really great talent but there's just not enough of that there instead it, it goes for more like like kind of cheap jokes like let's put ray Milland in a party and have him attempt to do the twist and then he sees a bunch of, naked, a bunch people. of naked people <laughs> that's right which is is funny but it's not really like moving the the allegory anywhere well let me ask you this uh how do you uh, you know obviously this movie's uh limited by its budget 
you know, mm-hmm. and so um, its special effects are not great. But how do you like a lot of this movie? I, I really of, like the special effects. Me too. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, you know, there are certain things I wish that it had done. I wish like. You know, we could have gotten a scene of watching a skeleton talk to him and stuff like that, you know. Um, but I actually really like the visual effect of of him kind of seeing the radio the radio waves or whatever, you know. Um, he's kind of seeing it like infrared kind of. Well, he has um, like, a, like, a, like a prismatic vision where he sees like all of the lights that are reflecting off of things. And that, that is like the photographic effect that, that Corman was clearly most in love with because like, it's like, that's it's like a- the last five minutes of the movie over the credits is just replaying these shots of like Las Vegas through like prismato vision or what is a spectrorama. Yeah. Is what they called it. But it's cool. I like it. I mean, yeah. clearly, I mean, what's probably happening here. Um, and I'm sure a Corman expert could, could elucidate uh, us on this, but is, is knowing Roger Corman, Someone probably showed him that effect, and he's like, "I'm gonna make a movie called Man with the X-ray Eyes and use that." You know what I mean? Like, I, I, that probably is that, what sparked the whole thing, anyway. That or or somebody just gave Roger Corman LSD. That's true. What one or the other, or or both? Or both. Yeah, most likely uh, both. More most likely both. Uh, the one thing I want to say about Dick Miller, who I love, I uh, like Joe Dante. Uh, I wish Dick Miller was in everything. And mm-hmm. and I've actually seen Dick Miller a lot in the last week because uh, I watched Gremlins um, because it's because uh, I'd write for it for uh, Seattle Screen Scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he was in this. And then uh, I just rewatched uh, Police Squad. Okay. Uh, and Dick Miller's in, in one of the Joe Dante directed episodes of Police Squad. Um, but what I, what I love about Dick Miller, it doesn't it seem to you that Dick Miller shows up in a movie and and that like for example in this movie he's in like one scene Mm -hmm. and he walks out of a door and we never see him again but in my mind's eye dick miller just walked onto the set of another movie and just went into another like i feel like dick miller's whole life is just walking off one set and onto another one just this continuous progression um because he's in everything he is he's he's great in a lot have you seen uh, a bucket of blood I have not seen a bucket of blood, but somebody just talked about that on Letterboxd. Yeah, that is a that is a Corman film, and uh, and stars Dick Miller as a, a beatnik who like uh, kills people and turns them into statues because oh. he's an artist, uh, and it's uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, I need to. Yeah, I do need to see that. I think someone just watched that, and I was like, oh, that sounds right up my alley. Yeah, uh, yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Rec- so recommended Miller. for all Dick Miller fans out there. I, we should we should do a Dick Miller show. He's, he's that good. Um, uh, did the the science of the film bother you at all? No, because I Come on, it, I I I can't, I can't I couldn't help it. That that's not how X rays work. It's just, it's just not. It's it's that's not how the eyes work. Like you don't take an X ray. Like you you would be seeing X rays. He wouldn't be like shooting X rays out of his eyes. Yes, Sean. <laughs> it it really bugged me. Like it, the I'm science sorry. just did I'm not sorry. make any sense. I'm really sorry that that ruined your enjoyment of X, the man with the X-ray. <laughs> I, I I can't help it. I I have it's a sickness. I understand. It's, I mean, no, I the, there, the man there with with plausibility that, issues. I I have <laughs> issues with that. You know, certain movies. You know, if it's if it's if it's an in, well, it doesn't even have to be. 
it's either an area that like I know intimately well and I'm like that's not how it's supposed to be or or if if the movie's trying to pretend like it's it's telling some sort of truths and it doesn't um but in a movie like this I'm just rolling with the punches you know yeah um, well and it and it kind of it sets up its its scientific explanation for what he's doing like he's going to be able to perceive a larger spectrum than than the visible spectrum that's so you're okay with eye. that i'm okay with that i'm i'm fine with that if he wants to see infrared like the predator that that's cool <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm okay with that he should be able to see you know a larger spectrum of light reflecting off of things but it shouldn't be able that would not allow him to see through things and it wouldn't allow him to see greater distances to the end of the universe where there's an eye watching everybody right and okay. that, that i understand that that, I, that bugged me i understand the distinction and i i am sorry on behalf of roger corman uh we apologize we hope you can forgive us um you'll we will refund your ticket <laughs> um yeah I, you know uh, yeah, I don't know. I, um, I mean, is, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of this about myself, but I can't not be annoyed by it. What do you think is the best? What is the best shock in this movie? I, I, to me, I guess there's only really one shock. I'm just leading you towards it. Right uh, well, like the the opening. Yeah, that's what, true. What, what, yeah. shocking? And the 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 first and last images of the, the 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 film well not the last image of the film but the last image of the narrative yes uh, uh is was pretty shocking ray, ray Milland pulling out the the black eyeball thing mm. that was i mean and that's and that's that's what what great uh genre exploitation b-movie types of things will do is they you know you know corman knows that that's that's the sucker punch that he's got in his back pocket, you know, and he, and and the way that it builds to that and cuts to that, and you go and it's effective, you know, and it's just a dude wearing some funny, um, you know, contact, contact lenses. lenses, yeah. But but still, when it cuts to it and you see it, you gasp for a second. I'm like, whoa, that's freaky stuff. Um, I think it's great. I think it's really cool. Um, so there's an, uh, an apocryphal story about the uh, an alternate ending to the film that that Corman may or may not have shot. Uh, he has gone both ways with it. Uh, it may have just been made up by by Stephen King uh, in his book uh, Dance Macabre. But uh, the uh, in the alternate version, the the last line of the film is is Ray Milan saying, "I can still see." Which would have been a really awesome ending, I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can work with that. Yeah, I think you know that would that would totally have not made yeah. any scientific sense, but it would have been really great. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a cherry on top. I yeah, yeah. I could I can dig that. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this: Would you rather have Ray Milan's power here, or would you rather have Claude Rain's power in The Invisible Man? Uh, would I be uh, as insane as Claude? Well, Rains? you were clearly as insane as both of these men. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> would I rather see everything or not be seen at all? Is right, what you're saying. Uh, I would rather be the Invisible Man. I, <laughs> I, I am a Delphine. 
Yeah, I'm the same way. It's yeah. true. Uh, it feels kind of creepy to say that. But, I mean, I guess either way, you could use it for nefarious purposes. I mean, Ray Milan just goes and checks out a bunch of naked ladies, you know, because he can. Um, well, he, you know. he goes He goes to Vegas and is, like, really bad at cheating in Vegas. Oh, that part's <laughs> hilarious. It's like, like no, he, no, he, no attempt at keeping a low profile. No, none whatsoever. <laughs> He's like, oh, they're closing down this blackjack table. I'll just move to the next one and, and I'm take going all to, of your money again. And I'm going to tell you that I'm cheating. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> pretty great. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Oh, Suckers. send send the helicopter and the police after me. Okay. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Uh, I also like that his name is uh, Doctor James Xavier, and that her name is Doctor Diane Fairfax. So they they got uh, the X in both of their names. That was pretty yeah. cool. Uh, that's screenwriting one hundred and one right there. Yes. Yes, lots, so we're gonna lots take of X's, quick... lots of rays. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take another quick break, and then we'll tie this thing up with a pretty bow. Yep, and uh, in honor of, of Ray Milland and the man with the X-ray eyes, uh, we, here is uh, I Wear My Sunglasses at Night. There you go. Sunglasses, of course, are ray bands. Right, I get it. Obviously, I get it. Yeah, yeah, I get you. Uh, so next week on the show, we have a, a great uh, a lineup, which which you uh, thought of. So I will let you do the honor of announcing <laughs> the pair because I I am I am 
I'm very impressed that you thought of this. So, so go ahead and tell, tell the people what we're watching. So as, as you know, dedicated listeners know, this is the 1965 year on the show. Uh, at the end of the year, we're going to do, you know, our 1965 episode, rattle off our best pictures and all, you know, best actor, best director, all that stuff. Uh, and so one of the biggest films of that year uh, is The Sound of Music, which is uh, playing near here soon. Uh, so that so we're going to do that tied in with the Seattle um, showing of that. And um also playing in Seattle. Also playing in Seattle and sharing uh, a lot of elements with the sound of music uh, is the new film from Joshua Oppenheimer, the director of The Art uh, Act of Killing. Um, his new film is called The Sound... What is it called? The Look of Silence. The Look of Silence. See, I, I screwed it up. <laughs> it's called The Look of Silence. And uh, so The Sound of Music and The Look of Silence will be our next show uh, coming down the pipeline. So, uh, it's pretty, pretty awesome stuff. Two film, two films about genocide. That's right. (laughs) That's, that's us. (laughs) That's what we think of in the, the, you know, waning days of summer. It's the, the summer of genocide on the George Sanders show. That's right. (laughs) Um, if you are in New York city, uh, there's a great series that's been running at the uh, museum of modern art. Uh, it's actually been running, I think for a while, uh, and it's almost it's almost wrapping up here, but it's a salute to Technicolor. Um, and it's this is the hundredth year of Technicolor, I guess, or something like that. Some weird thing like that. Um, hundred years sounds weird now that I'm saying it, but I think that's what it said. No, that sounds about right. Okay. Um, anyway, they're doing a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, past stuff include the Wizard of Oz, all that stuff. But um, the one I really want to talk about, they're doing a couple of cartoons. Uh, some shorts things and, and some uh, features are doing Fantasia, Pinocchio, stuff like that. But uh, today, the day that we're recording this uh, is July 27th. And do you know who turned 75 years old today, Sean? Nope. Bugs Bunny turned hey. 75 years old today. So happy birthday, Bugs. And uh, at MoMA, they're doing uh, a really cool looking uh, shorts package. Uh, Fleischer. Uh, UPA and Looney Tunes Technicolor cartoons, 1938 to 1955. Uh, and it's going to be hosted by uh, Ralph Eggleston, who's a production designer at Pixar. Uh, and they're doing like a dozen shorts, um, August 1st and August 5th, uh, including Hide and Hair, which is a, a, a Looney Tunes starring Bugs Bunny. And uh, sounds totally awesome. That sounds great. Uh, Bugs Bunny, always good. Happy birthday, Bugs. Uh, if also playing in in New York, yours is in New York, right? Yep. Also Thanks playing. For listening, Sean. Yep. Sorry, I was looking at mine. Uh, also playing in New York at the IFC Center is uh, is ongoing. It's been going on for the last month, and it will be continuing for a while. But playing uh, this weekend in particular is a a. a, a a Yesajiro Ozu retrospective at the IFC Center, uh, and playing this weekend, uh, July 31st through August 2nd, is one of Ozu's very best films. It is Early Summer, uh, which is the the middle film in the Noriko trilogy, along with uh, Late Spring and Tokyo Story, and it is uh, it might be better than either of those two films. It's hard when you talk about better 
Ozu movies than than others, but it's I prefer Early Summer to the other two. Uh, it is it's certainly a bigger story than them. It, it combines, you know, the typical Ozu plotline of parents wanting to find a husband for their daughter, but it also has like the young kids that you get from like uh, I Was Born But or, or Ohio. Uh, and you have like the old people as well that you get in Tokyo Story. It's got like the whole generational thing in the big Ozu soup. So you can see that on 35mm this weekend, early summer in New York. Sounds great. It really is. Have you have you seen it? No, you know, we always talk about this, but uh Ozu, I I I need to get in more Ozu. I've seen a I've seen a few, but all the all the ones this you know all the similarly named ones I can't, I haven't dived into yet because it's too daunting. We should, you know, we should talk about Ozu on the, on the show sometime. We, we haven't done any Ozu. We'll do an Ozu Dick Miller episode. That would be, <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. <laughs> um, so you can find out more about us, uh, God forbid, at thegeorgesandersshow.blogspot.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Show. We have an email account, the George Sanders show at gmail.com. Uh, and we write about movies on seattlescreenscene.com. Uh, usually something every week on there from us. Uh, yeah. We should, we should do a pair of uh, a bucket of blood and the flavor of green tea over rice. Ooh, that sounds really good. Yeah. Tasty. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we don't have shows planned for September and all that stuff. So yeah. why not? Yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, until next time, I guess. We're going to close with X. We listened to X at the beginning of the show, Johnny Hit and Run Pauline, uh, and X is taking over at the end of the show, too, with adult books. Um, I just rewatched Decline of Western Civilization, uh, and the X stuff in there is electric. Um, And if you haven't seen that movie, you should. Or if you like X, you should see... uh, that whole documentary about them that I can't think of the title now, the band, the band with x-ray eyes. There you go. Something like that. Um, anyway, X is pretty cool. And so let's listen to them right now.